Most sexual assaults are committed by someone known to the victim. Rape is a crime of power and control. We'll talk about finding help for victims of sexual violence right now on The Law Works. From West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Closed captioning for The Law Works is made possible by a grant from the Monongalia County Bar Association to support legal information and education for all West Virginians. The Law Works is made possible by major grants from the West Virginia Attorney General and from Software Systems Incorporated, a West Virginia company established in 1975 which provides high-end support services, programming, and consulting for county government AS400 mid-range computer systems as well as PC-based systems, and by a grant from the West Virginia Bar Foundation. The West Virginia Bar Foundation, the philanthropic organization for West Virginia's legal profession and justice system, promoting public knowledge of the law in West Virginia. Rape crisis centers provide free and confidential counseling to victims, whether it is immediately following the assault or years later. My guest is Nancy Hoffman, the state coordinator for the West Virginia Foundation for Rape Information and Services. Nancy, thank you for joining us this afternoon. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the very basics. What is rape? All right, rape is uh, a form of sexual violence and it is the most um, personal form because it involves some kind of penetration, whether it's vaginal, anal, or um, oral. Sexual violence is a pretty broad spec spectrum of crimes, sex crimes, and it can be what we call hands-off crimes or hands-on crimes. Hands-on would be some kind of touching involved, which includes rape, it includes sexual contact, fondling, molestation, or it could be a hands-off crime, which people don't necessarily think that much about, sexual harassment, uh, voyeurism, peeping toms, those kinds of crimes. Hands-off crimes would seem to me to be difficult to characterize as actually criminal activity. Sexual harassment, for example, in the workplace would not be unless it uh, rose to the level of, say, stalking. Uh, and of course, it, you can be harassed, doesn't have to be in the workplace, and that probably would be stalking if somebody was present frequently and making you uncomfortable. Sexual harassment is a difficult crime, particularly under um, in West Virginia, because there are, isn't a law of, that makes it a crime of sexual harassment. It all depends on what um, the workplace has identified as a crime of, of harassment, and those crimes are dependent upon where you work. Like if you worked in a federal facility, there is a crime of sexual harassment. The state, state government has that crime. But unless you have so many employees in, in your employees at a business, you may not be um, 
eligible, let's say, to file for a crime of sexual harassment? Of course, behavior like that could rise to the level of a simple assault also. Actually, if there were any kind of touching that took place, absolutely, it would be sexual assault or sexual um, contact. We, we need to differentiate between uh, two different crimes, and a lot of people hear about assault and battery. Assault is a non-touching crime, and uh, a sexual behavior, harassment, stalking could be an assault if it puts you in the fear of physical harm. Battery, any kind of touching, would be a battery if it's an insulting touching or a touching that makes you fear uh, for your personal safety. And these are very complex things, and uh, when we talk about sex crimes, it gets much more complex than that, and we're not gonna try to unravel all that this afternoon. We frankly don't have enough time to do that. When we talk about sexual violence, that we're t that's kind of an umbrella term for all of these things. Exactly, and it's a continuum. Some are more invasive than other types of sexual crimes, and obviously the sexual assault or rape would be the most invasive. How often does this kind of behavior occur? It's a difficult statistic to identify because sexual assault is one of the two least reported crimes in the country. So the only way that we can really identify the prevalence is a victimization survey. And one of those surveys was actually done in West Virginia in 2008 by the West Virginia Department of Health and Human Resources. And they found through a random telephone survey that one in six women and one in 21 men would be in this state a victim of an attempted or completed forcible rape. One in 21 men. Mm -hmm. We usually don't think of men as being the victims of sexual violence. Unfortunately, and I'll say this because it's true, we usually think of them as the perpetrators of it. And most of the perpetrators of sexual violence, both against women and against men, are male. But men are victims, particularly younger males, of sexual assault and sexual abuse. And the figure for women was one in six? One in six. You know, actually, I've heard larger figures than that. The statistic that's quoted a lot nationally is one in four women, or every two minutes. But again, it's a difficult tr crime to pin down the actual numbers because most victims don't report to law enforcement. Only about a third of sexual assault victims, male or female, actually report to law enforcement. So you have two-thirds that don't report, which means we, it's really hard to identify an exact figure. It may seem like a silly question, but why don't the victims of sexual violence report it? multiple reasons, but it is a good question and one of the most common questions we're probably asked. Most perpetrators or sex offenders are someone the victim knows. About 85% in this state know who their uh, offenders are. So they may not report because it's someone they care about or someone they want to protect or someone who that um, they know that the penalties could lead to incarceration so they don't want to go through the criminal justice system. They may not want to go through the criminal justice system just because it typically hasn't been kind to victims of sexual assault. The media tends to blame the victim uh, and in some areas they don't uh, protect the name of the victim so to go through a whole court proceeding and not be assured that the, the offender would be uh, actually indicted, then it discourages victims from coming forward. 
we only have in the reported sexual assaults in this state, only about 22%, um, less than a fourth, actually end up with an actual arrest. So if, it, <coughs> if only about a third of victims report to law enforcement, and of those that do report, only about a fourth end up in an arrest, then it's not encouraging to victims to come forward. And I even hate to put that out there because anyone watching this program, you know, we want to encourage people to see <coughs> that they have justice, but it's a, uh, an issue that we're trying to address statewide. And it's getting better. Well, the truth of it is, though, if you are the victim of any crime, it doesn't have to be a, a, sex, a crime of sexual violence, it could be anything. You are going to be inconvenienced, you are going to be uncomfortable by having to go through the judicial process, but if you don't go through it, the perpetrator of the act against you may very well become the perpetrator of an act against some other or others, and it's got to stop somewhere. And that's the reality. Um, probably most offenders have already offended and will continue to offend, but to know that a criminal justice system that um, <coughs> once you report sexual assault, it is a criminal offense. So it is out of the victim's hands. Uh, the prosecuting attorney makes a decision in terms of what charges are filed, if any are filed. So it's kind of uh, frightening, and it's a major decision for victims to make at a very traumatic time. We have seen a change nationally uh, to provide another option for victims, that they can go to a hospital and have a forensic exam, a medical forensic exam, and have the evidence collected, because in a sexual assault, the crime scene is the victim's body. So to have that evidence collected is important because it only stays on the body for a short period of time. And we now have a law, as every state does, that victims can go to the hospital, have a kit collected, and rather than that kit be sent to the crime lab to be um, processed, it can go to an off-site space, which is housed at Marshall's University Forensic Science Center. And those kits can be stored for up to 24 months, giving the victim time to make that decision whether he or she wants to report to law enforcement. But honestly, the longer you delay in reporting a crime, the more difficult to prove that crime becomes. In many cases, that's absolutely true. I'm kind of interested in your comments about a person maybe doesn't want to report this crime because the perpetrator will end up in jail or the perpetrator maybe has promised to do better in the future, something like that. If your husband, boyfriend, next door neighbor has committed a crime of sexual violence against you, and then begged you not to report it or told you that he'll do better the next time, that he is going to change. I recommend that you look at him, smile, and say, change for your next girlfriend, your next wife, your next neighbor, I'm done with you. They don't stop easily. I suppose maybe sometimes somebody will act violently once and then never again, but it's a high risk to take to uh, bet your life or your safety on that. We find with violence it tends to escalate. So that's true in domestic violence as well as in, in sexual assault as well. Just understanding why people offend provides some answers, I think, to that. Uh, because sexual assault is an issue of power and control. 
So you're not going, it's just like if I were going to be uh, a robber and burglarize someone's home, I'm not going to pick the house that has the security sign out front and the mean dog um, in the yard. The lights on inside. Exactly. And the people are home. I'm going to pick which house that I have the most likelihood of um, being successful. And that's what we find with sex offenders. They tend to target someone who they think is not going to tell, who's going to be the most vulnerable, and who they'll get away with it with. What are the circumstances under which sex crimes are committed? Can you be a little more specific there? Well, it, I suppose it's broad. If most crimes like this are committed by people, the victim know. Okay. But I also see situations, particularly on college campuses. Okay. We used to call it date rape. I think that's a term that's falling out of favor now. Mm-hmm. But a young woman will go out, put herself in a position of jeopardy, and end up getting raped. How does that happen? What should she do to avoid that? Sexual assault occurs in so many different settings, and that's why it's a difficult question to to break down. On college campuses, often alcohol and drugs are involved, both with the perpetrator and the the victim. So that is um, what we see. They actually had identified at one point what they called the red zone for college students, those first six weeks when they're on campus, where you might have a new student, someone who obviously is very young. It may be her first time away from home. She isn't used to living away from home, much less being in situations where making decisions of going out late at night um, or going to a party. And there was a study done by David Lisak with offenders, particularly on college campuses, and they said that they had a grooming process where they would pick and target the student they thought was the most vulnerable. Someone who liked the attention, someone who was very trusting and innocent, might be invited to a party, and then they would take her to a party and have alcohol there, encourage her to drink a lot of alcohol, and then take her off to an identified room where they would have sex with her. Sounds like something out of an animal house. Mm -hmm. And you see that over and over and over again. Because yes, someone likes the attention, but if they're not aware of what their alcohol limits are, or weren't aware that someone who was kind to them for a couple weeks and showed them around campus and took interest in them and showed them um, where different um, resources were in the community for groceries and laundry and those sorts of things. And then after they have groomed them a little bit and actually gained their trust, then they took advantage of them. And we see that on college campuses. We see that with younger Uh, children, for example. Uh, Most of the sexual assaults reported in West Virginia, two-thirds are minors. And when you think about how the the Sandusky case took place at Penn State, where you have young children, in those cases males, who were trusting an adult who was, uh, they thought, was taking care of them and looking out for their best interests and takes advantage of them, then it makes sense that uh, they don't, they're afraid to tell, they don't know who to tell, they 
don't know that anyone would believe them if they did tell. And they do some blaming of themselves of, I shouldn't have gone with them, I shouldn't have been drinking, I shouldn't have done um, some of those behaviors that led up to that. But that's where we always say that it's never the victim's fault because truly the penalty for bad judgment in some situations shouldn't be rape. Still, and I, I've been a prosecuting attorney, I've been a defense attorney for 36 years now, and in some cases, the defendant's defense, and it may be his, I'm gonna say his, sole defense is she was asking for it. And that defense does work, sometimes. It's a good idea, I think, for a young woman to use common sense. When she's dressing for the evening, she needs to put her common sense on along with whatever the outfit is, whatever the makeup is, because we're living in an era of personal responsibility. And if you get in front of a jury and a jury says to themselves, or the defense attorney says to you as the victim, why did you let that happen? That can be a good question. It is a good question on one sense, but in asking that to someone who is a victim of a crime really puts that responsibility of the crime on the victim and not on the perpetrator. For example, we don't teach people to dodge bullets to prevent getting murdered. <laughs> now, why are we teaching victims to dodge sex offenders? You know, where does that responsibility truly lie? We've done a lot of trainings in our work as the Sexual Assault Coalition, and it's interesting how if you have a group of males and females in a room, and you ask the males, how many of you, when you go out at night, and you're, or have been out somewhere, even working at your office, and the parking lot's empty, and you're going out to the car, how many males are afraid going out? How many males put the car key in their hands as we taught for years um, so that the key's exposed so that if someone attacks you, you're, you're prepared to, to respond? All the males in the room almost always say, I never think about it. And every single female in that room says, I have to think about it. That's common sense. Mm -hmm. But is it, is it fair? Is that what the society really needs to be? Do I have to spend my time preventing someone from assaulting me? We don't do that in burglaries. We don't say, well, when you bought that nice watch or you bought that big TV, what did you think? Someone's gonna come into your house and steal that. So do we blame victims of burglary? No. Do we tend to blame victims of rape? Yes. You know, honestly, though, we do live in a society where you have to worry about that. Mm -hmm. We do. And I will tell you, as a man, I am very reluctant to walk through an empty, dark parking lot, mm -hmm. not because I'm particularly afraid of being raped. I'm afraid of being assaulted in other ways, my wallet taken. I look around corners, and I may very well carry my keys in my hand. And honestly, I don't feel like I'm a sissy for feeling that way, although some, I suppose, would say that. But you do have to take care of yourself. We don't, we don't train people to jump out of the way of the bullet, but shouldn't we be training them to look for the gun and stay out of situations where the bullet might be coming at them? 
to go other places and to do other things. And, and that's what I mean, particularly we talk about a college campus where young people who are vulnerable are present. I, I would encourage them not to look like they're looking for sex when they go out in the evenings. And that's a hard thing to say because so many of them are. Well, and that's just the dress you know, that's just the popular style right now. Uh, when we look at prevention, we're really looking at two areas. We're looking at preventing perpetration and risk reduction with victims. And so those kinds of scenarios of looking at um, carrying your keys would be a potential risk reduction. But as you, I'm sure, would feel going out into a parking lot, that key is not going to prevent someone from attempting. Or sneaking assault. up behind yeah. you or it's, something like that. It's, it's just not. Well, let's, let's talk about the, the practicalities of it. If a woman, if a person is assaulted in, in this context, what should she do? Okay. First of all, I want to circle right back to that one um, comment about dress. Um, is that a risk reduction? We don't know because studies that they have done with uh, sex offenders in prison, most of them said they don't even remember what she was wearing because they had already planned that assault. So to think that it's what someone's wearing negates what most offenders tell us is that it wasn't what she was wearing. I think in terms of prevention, what we can look at in risk reduction is trying to always stay with a friend or a buddy that you trust until you really know that other person. Um, we look at the whole issue of drug-facilitated sexual assault, where alcohol is involved in a, or drugs in about 75% of sexual assaults. With victims, it makes them uh, maybe become more vulnerable. And with the offenders, it gives them a, a bigger sense of bravado and uh, it empowers them in, in, in their minds, at least. So we need to be aware of the whole issue of drug-facilitated sexual assault and what the impact of alcohol has on you as an individual and what your limits could be for you to actually maintain capacity in making decisions. We also encourage, um, and again, this is back to that naivety that we see with uh, folks who are with people they trust. They wouldn't think that someone would slip something into their drink, which would make them totally not remember what happened. And some of the drugs that are used to sexual assault impair the memory. They're used, um, ketamine, for example, is used as um, an, anesthetic. an anesthetic with animals. And so it makes you not remember. So you have a victim who wakes up the next morning and realizes that she has had sexual intercourse, but she doesn't remember anything that happened. So it's understandable that she blames herself because she thinks, I don't even know what I did. And she may very well have done absolutely nothing but innocently drink a drink. There is so much more to this than we can talk about in one half hour television program. So I want to give you a couple of sources of information. Uh, the first is the West Virginia Foundation for Rape and Information Services uh, web address. It is uh, www.fris.org. 
fris.org. There is a wealth of information there, including how to get help, various places around the state. There are uh, shelters, there are information services that can help you. Also, if you can't remember anything else, write this down, stick it on your telephone. It's the telephone number for the National Sexual Assault Hotline. That number is 1-800-656-HOPE, 656-H-O-P-E, or 4673. You can get that number off the FRIS uh, website, put it on a sticker, put it on a piece of paper, write it down, remember it. Nancy Hoffman, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you also for being with us. On behalf of the Law Works, I'm Dan Ringer. Good evening. If you would like to suggest a topic for a future The Law Works show, or if you're a school teacher and would like to receive a DVD of this show for classroom use, send us an email to thelawworks at comcast.net or visit us on Facebook. On the LawWorks website at thelawworks.org, you'll find a listing of recent The Law Works programs, additional information about this show's topic, and video of this and recent shows. You can also find The Law Works programs on YouTube and iTunes. The Law Works is produced in cooperation with the Office of the West Virginia Attorney General, the West Virginia Bar Foundation, the Mountain State Bar, the Monongahela County Bar Association, and the West Virginia University College of Law. The Law Works is made possible by major grants from the West Virginia Attorney General and from Software Systems Incorporated, a West Virginia company established in 1975 which provides high-end support services, programming, and consulting for county government AS400 mid-range computer systems as well as PC-based systems, and by a grant from the West Virginia Bar Foundation. The West Virginia Bar Foundation the philanthropic organization for West Virginia's legal profession and justice system, promoting public knowledge of the law in West Virginia. Additional support for the law works is provided by the West Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals. From West Virginia Public Broadcasting, 